Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We got terrible December retail sales numbers that came in four weeks late due to the government shutdown. But before you get all bearish, the way that many traders have, we have the uh, economic advisor to President Trump, Larry Kudlow, saying this about the data. Take a listen. First of all, you had 10 days of government shutdown. I regard that as a temporary glitch, as you know. Uh, Secondly, shoppers were very late. According to the National Retail uh, Federation, shoppers came in very late. I wouldn't be surprised if January was revised up because of that. That was Larry Kudlow speaking to a gaggle of reporters in Washington, D.C. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, Kawar Kadana, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. And joining us by phone, Craig Johnson, President of Customer Growth Partners. Carl, let's start with you. Was this data glitchy? I don't think there were glitches there in terms of a collection of the data and whatnot. Uh, however, to the extent that uh, we had a government shutdown, uh, probably those government workers were kind of absentees in the uh, later part of the holiday shopping season, so that could have had an impact. I don't really buy into a, we- a weather story there because uh, one of the most weather-sensitive categories tends to be motor vehicle sales. If there's two feet of snow in the dealership lot, you tend to not go for a test drive. Uh, and actually, that was the rare bright spot in this report with uh, motor vehicle sales up uh, 1%. Uh, in the month. Uh, the other factor there, obviously, uh, is the uh, equity market uh, and financial market turmoil that we saw in, you know, we, we knew about in December, not fully, uh, but that was definitely scaring people away or leading to some sense of, uh, uh, you know, conservatism uh, with respect to uh, spending habits. So, in light of this report, we have trimmed our GDP forecast for Q4, right? Consumers are a very important part of that forecast. So we've taken growth down from 2.9 uh, to 2 and a quarter. Uh, for the, uh, that's for, a big revision. That's a very substantial revision. That shows how bad this report actually was. Uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, we're not changing our outlook for consumers uh, over the course of 2019. Beware. I think there's some sticker shock as people are getting smaller than expected tax refunds uh, as they're filing, Uh, but the labor market is on very sound footing. Uh, Personal income growth is strong. That means consumers will be back in the game, but maybe not until Q2. So Craig Johnson, love to bring you on in this discussion. What do you make of this retail number and does it change your view of the consumer and for growth in 2019? Well, uh, answering the second question first, no, we don't. We don't think it uh, uh, significantly affects the outlook uh, balance of 2019. And the reason for that is 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 it gets to the first question: is that we think there are clear anomalies in the data here. Um, overall, you know, retail works in a, in a world of year-over-year sales and total sales growth in December per the report, and this is excluding autos, gasoline, and restaurants. Normal exclusions is, was up only 1.0%. Uh, um, but if you look at non-store retail for December, um, 87% of which is with online sales, it's up only 3.1%. Uh, that is the worst showing since the nadir of the Great Recession uh, in 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 2008, holiday 2008. Uh, and yet, if you look at online year-to-date sales through November. They were up 10.7%. October and November, which is inclusive of the first half of holiday, online sales were up, again, using their data, was up 13.5%. And for the thought that suddenly this ramped down from 13.5%, 
13.5% pace in October, November Wait. to only a 3% pace in December. Hold on a second. Ridiculous. Craig, are, are you basically saying that the numbers are inaccurate here? Yes. Okay, That's so you don't answer. believe the numbers. You think that they are wrong. Absolutely. Because this would imply a deceleration from October to December of a, of a growth rate of 13.5% to only a 3% growth rate in December, which has never happened. Okay. Um, and other, other, the other uh, uh, retail, Amazon is almost half of all retail sales. Their Q4 sales were up 18% year over year. Wayfarers, which is the second biggest pure play, Online, they'll be up almost 40% uh, th- this quarter. Okay. And so anybody who thinks the 3% growth rate for online in December is living in a dream world. And, and we're certainly going to get some more uh, earnings next week to confirm or rebut some of this data. But, Carl, what gives you faith in this data enough to revise downward your GDP estimate for this year? Well, the retail sales are, whether, whether the data are right or not, and there's definitely a valid case there uh, that uh, maybe there's some distortion, uh, the retail sales data nonetheless are plucked and put plugged into the uh, GDP tabulation. So if there's a mistake in retail sales, that gets factored into uh, the GDP numbers as well. So it's just really plugging in the actual arithmetic. Uh, what can happen here is you have sampling issues. So uh, some retailers may not be counted in the retail sales survey. Uh, I don't know if that's the case for Amazon or whatnot. Uh, usually census doesn't disclose who they're uh, polling. Uh, but you know, if you if you have a lot of uh, retailers that were doing poorly at the end, end of the year, certainly there were lots of headlines about you know Sears and, and companies of that nature, uh, that could be feeding some uh, kind of distortion uh, into the survey. So, Craig, how about 2019? I mean, seriously, on the, on the, uh, do you sense that if the data is uh, correct or I- incorrect, that you're the consumer's in a good position for 2019? Yeah, because the underlying consumer fundamentals. The reason we're sanguine about the rest of the year is is that um, whether for retail sales or consumer spending in general, retail is the biggest seg- segment of consumer. And consumer is 69 percent of the economy. Is, is that the fundamentals that drive retail sales is two biggest fun, the biggest fundamental is growth in disposable personal income. And right now that depends, that in turn is driven by two things. One, growth in employment, particularly full-time employment, which has been very robust. And second, by growth in uh, uh, average wages, which are up 3% and change. Yeah. Uh, those two vectors combined to be a major driver, about a 5% driver of retail sales, and that's why we, we're sticking yeah. with our forecast of about of somewhere around 5% year-over-year retail sales growth Craig. for yeah. 2019. Craig Johnson, thank you so much for being with us, President of Customer Growth Partners, Kara Kadana, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. Just want to bring you this headline, uh, just crossing, U.S. and China trade teams are said to be far apart on reform demands. Looking at the Dow, it is off its earlier highs on this news, uh, so we are going to keep an eye on that as the day progresses. Well, Lisa, it seems like you and I are spending more and more time talking about gaming. Maybe that's just having Matt Canterman come in and talk about the big gaming companies and their earnings. But one aspect of the gaming business is esports that just fascinates me. This is the business where people come to arenas and other public places to watch other people game. This is a real business. It is a growing business. This is a $1 billion business, 400 million viewers uh, and growing. So to help us kind of dig deep into this business and the opportunities here, we have a couple of gentlemen in our 1130 studios, Ken D. Cubellis, CEO of Blackridge Acquisition Company. That is a uh, NASDAQ listed uh, SPAC under the symbol BRAC and Frank 
uh, Frank Ng, CEO of Our Game International. And Ken and Frank, I guess your companies are, are in the process of merging to form uh, what will be the uh, new company will be Allied Esports Entertainment. So Frank, maybe if you could just give us a sense of esports, why esports, what are the opportunities that you guys see in this business? Uh, esports has been around for a long time, uh, but as a subset of gaming. But now it becomes an industry because in the past few years, streaming becomes extremely popular and that really support the growth of esports. And, 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 and the essence, the core element is the viewership. Viewership has grown to a very large number already. You know, last year we had about 400 million on a global basis viewers regularly on esports. And it's already bigger than many major sports. So, um, as, as it develops right now, you know, we, we see a lot of new business model that is emerging. And we, we really believe this is at the very beginning stage of the industry, you know, to monetize from the esports activities. So you, you two are coming together to form uh, Allied Esports Entertainment. Uh, Ken DeCobillis uh, joining us here as well. And your firm, Blackridge Acquisition Company, didn't it focus on oil? That, that was part of the initial focus, yeah. but I will tell you... <laughs> How did you get to this part? <laughs> when you have a SPAC, you have a finite uh, timeline that you have to get a deal done. So it's all about deal flow. And for us, we're very fortunate in that a gentleman named Lyle Berman took a company called World Poker Tour Public in 2004. He eventually sold that, and then Frank's company bought WPT three years ago. As Frank was looking at various ways to fund the esports initiative, he heard that Lyle had a SPAC, so he approached Lyle a in SPAC, July. for those who don't know, is Special Acquisition Company. Yes, Carry correct. On. So they approached us, and I can tell you, the opportunity with this business blows away any we were looking at in the energy space. So it's all about shareholder return for us, and we think this is the right bet. Okay, so what is the business plan for your company, and give us a sense of how that maybe mirrors what's going on in the esports business in general. I would say this, this is unique, okay? If you're looking to play esports today, there's really two ways to do it. You are a video game publisher that makes the games itself, or a lot of the traditional sports franchise owners are buying teams that compete against each other. We're game and team agnostic. The strategy is threefold. You hold a live event, like at our Luxor Arena in Las Vegas, produce content off of that, and then drive viewers from the content piece to an online platform. So it's the three-pillar strategy that, by the way, has been deployed at the World Poker Tour for 17 years. So that's the play here to monetize. So, Frank, talk to me about the arena-type play, because this is something I have not seen that much about. I mean, we know that uh, watching competitive gamers, that's a very popular thing to do. People stream that. But, you know, what is the market like for in-person events right now? Well, uh, I, I think the market is growing very rapidly right now. A lot of the bigger esports events today, they're being held at Coliseum, like, you know, Candlestick Park, for example. Uh, you know, but we're we trying to create a new format, a dedicated arena just for esports. Basically, it's just like a studio, a TV studio, uh, with live broadcast capabilities that can house a thousand people. With those guests, your show looks great. And our focus, instead of, you know, doing more like a proper organized league or teams. Instead, we want to create shows, entertainment for esports that can be carried out on a frequent, regular basis. And as such, the commercial value that can be created will be a lot bigger for our sponsors. So talk about where you are in, or how you, how you view the model, sponsorship, advertisers, how critical is that to kind of what you guys are thinking about? 
Well, I, I would say this. The demographic in, in eSports or the viewership is primarily 35 and under. That's a highly coveted demographic. And the beauty of the ecosystem right now is they are all online. So eSports is an online business. The content that will be produced from the live events at the arenas will be distributed primarily online. So the sponsors really covet that demographic, and so they want to get behind this business as well. So, Ken, how big do you think uh, this how, – how, how do you sort of monetize this in terms of ticket sales? Do you do uh, gear? I mean, just the, the practical aspects of this. Yeah, the two really big opportunities with this business model is with the content to sell sponsorship or spell, uh, sell the content uh, to distribution networks, okay, number one. But thirdly, which really meets up with what Frank's background is, is an online subscription-based service geared primarily toward gamers. That's what Frank's been doing his entire career. Yeah. Thank you both so much for being here. Ken DiCubilis, uh, CEO of Blackridge Acquisition Company, soon to be uh, future CFO of Allied Esports Entertainment. Frank Ng, Chief Executive of Our Game International, future CEO of Allied Esports Entertainment. Both of you here in our interactive broker studios. Thank you so much uh, for being here with us. Well, the number of the day is 1.2, as in a 1.2% decline in retail sales for the month of December, just released this morning, uh, certainly impacting the markets. To get us give us a sense of what this means for the consumer and for markets going forward, we bring in Peter Anderson. Peter is the founder of Anderson Capital Management. He joins us right here in our Bloom, Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Peter, this number was clearly a surprise for the market. Uh, does it change your view of the consumer and, and maybe how you're positioning your portfolio? The only thing it does is it really reinforces my opinion that last quarter was such a crazy quarter, nobody really had firm opinions as to what was happening. And as a result, I think what you're seeing is the consumer just recoiled back and said, I'm out for the month of December simply because nobody's giving me any pure advice. Nobody is telling me which way the markets are going. Everybody seems confused. And when I'm confused, I go back into my bunker. Are you confused right now? I've never been confused. All actually. right. So, so, <laughs> so on a, what's your, what's your take? Well, I think that the market has, uh, it needs to discount all the political policies that we're we're following. I mean, certainly it's very important about the tariffs, the wall, Brexit, but let's just put it in perspective. You know, that if you like U.S. stocks, then I would suggest buying U.S. stocks based on the fundamentals and not whether the tweet of the day by President Trump will actually change your all mind. Right. Paul, can you believe this? If you like U.S. stocks, you should buy U.S. stocks. I have to wonder, on a day like today, when you see uh, Coca-Cola shares plunging the most since 2008, if you like the U.S. economy and you think people will keep drinking stuff that isn't just water, would you be a buyer of Coke shares? Well, I don't own Coke shares because it's not in my universe of stocks that I own. I tend to own stocks that are a little less followed, actually, because I think Coke is followed to death. And in terms of advantages of information, it's pretty tough because it's followed so much. But when you're looking at other stocks that might have missed their earnings that are not followed such uh, as closely, then I think those are buying opportunities if you do have the confidence in your own analysis. So we've certainly seen a tremendous uh, rate or level of volatility, certainly in December, and even coming that snapback here we've seen this year to date. 
do you use volatility as a buying opportunity? Is that is that kind of how you're viewing it right now, or are you using volatility as a, as an excuse to step back? Well, you know, volatility is probably the most frequently used word in in our business, and I have to tell you, I almost ignore the total volatility. I just go ahead. I say to myself, if this is a stock that I like, and I've liked it for some time, and I still continue to like it, if a new client comes in, I don't even market time. I usually just jump right into the jump rope and don't wait for vol to pick up so I might pick up the stock at a little bit more cheaply than I normally would because it's a fool's errand to try to time that so you'll hear a lot of people on my side talking about how scary the volatility is but I'm not afraid of that because I don't think it's a major driver if you're in this market for the long run sure you might pick up some stocks uh, during a high periods of volatility where you might get cheaper prices but in the end it averages out and you should focus on more technical things all right so if you are uh, not afraid of making a statement and making opinions. What do you like? What shares do you like? Well, I like, uh, hold your breath now, NVIDIA. <laughs> NVIDIA is Ooh, reporting tonight. Yes. Talk about volatile stock. Yes. Exactly. Okay. But, but he doesn't pay attention to the volatile. That's right. <laughs> So let me just quickly talk to you about NVIDIA. You know, I, I grew up in uh, the world of physics, so I feel like I understand uh, humbly a little bit more than the street about uh, NVIDIA's addressable market in the future. So certainly it will be lumpy around, along the way, and it was, of course, last quarter, and maybe even this quarter because it is reporting aftermarket. But that is a tremendous stock that you can get at now a PE of less than 20 times and if you remember it was trading at a much higher valuation as recently as six months ago anything else in tech does tech scare you or do you, or do you like you you like the growth and you can make the valuation call well i love uh computer security so for instance palo alto networks CyberArk just reported recently, uh, those two companies will never, their addressable market, uh, unlike Coca-Cola for instance, their addressable market is growing undeniably and as we get more complicated in communications and technology and hacking it's uh, an arms race so that will never end except with the advent of uh, quantum computing which is far far away in the future so what about the breakdown between stocks and bonds and how are you allocating right now uh, in terms of asset allocation I would say that it is well overdone in our industry to have uh, people come in here and talk about a core satellite model which might use 10 to 15 asset classes. And some of the exposures are 2 to 4% per asset class. What does that get you? It, it gets you low conviction. Uh, I advocate having, if you're coming in on cash, for instance, so let's uh, suspend capital gains issues. If you came in on cash, I would advocate as little as three to four asset classes for a completely diversified portfolio. I would n I would do away with the lexicon of tactical allocation and strategic allocation. So what would they be? There would be a core uh, S&P 500 ETF, very, very cheap, a core ETF uh, of uh, fixed income, and then my 20 stock portfolio, which would hopefully give you the alpha. And then you are done. Your reports come out three, line items basically yeah so 10 seconds here have you shifted the allocation between stocks and bonds or kept it sort of like a 60 40 type model uh for most people i keep it at 60 40 and uh i really don't switch that and sometimes i even let that run believe it or not as opposed to going back and tactically reallocating
Peter Anderson, not afraid to give some points of view. Really great having you. Peter Anderson, founder of Anderson Capital Management, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Right now, let's focus on airplanes, in particular those that have staircases leading from one deck to another. They are going out of style and off the market. Joining us now to discuss, George Ferguson, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. George, uh, so Airbus is scrapping its unprofitable A380 double-decker jet. Why? Yeah, so, I mean, there just wasn't the demand for the airplane, and, and that's been, uh, as you said, you know, the same for all sort of four-engine airplanes lately. Um, I mean, there's a real move to, to smaller, wide bodies, so uh, airplanes with two uh, two aisles in them. You know, smaller airplanes can be deployed to, to more markets, different markets. You don't have to worry about um, them being being too large that when you drop them into a market, you'll you'll hurt fares dramatically. The A380 really was just was too big to fly to most markets. It would just dilute fares and hurt profitability. And All I could say, Paul, he says you drop it into a market and people get hurt. I right. have a very different image than what he's talking right. about. If you ever see one in things land, it's amazing. Fly it into, sorry. So I think that's just the challenge. It's too big for most markets. You fly it in there and you really dilute fares and Emirates profitability has been... Uh, uh, it's deteriorated over the last bunch of years. There's a lot of competition out there, and they finally, I think, came to terms with the fact that it's just too big an airplane to operate most places. So, George, how rare is it for, you know, an airplane manufacturer to cancel a whole line of a of its plane, arguably its marquee line of its of of a plane after such a short short. Uh, shelf life. It seems like they really misread the market here. Airbus did. Yeah, you know, I think I think they did. Uh, you know, for Airbus, uh, it's not as rare as it should be. The A340 was another four-engined airplane that had a pretty short um, uh, lifespan. So um, they've got two sort of misses on the wide-body front. I would say in the last couple of decades. Um, and you know, I think you just have to stay close to customers. I feel like uh, I feel like some of their competitors have maybe been a little bit close to customers and understand demand a little bit better. You know, Boeing built the 747. It's what 50 years old now, right? They built it many, many, many years ago. Um, and and in those days, the hub and spoke was more of a way airlines went, went about trying to do their business. And now we're doing more point to point. And I feel like Airbus sort of really missed that point to point trend with the 380. Uh, Airbus shares up for nearly four and a half percent in Paris right now. I want to get your sense, George, uh, of just the fact that more than 3000 jobs will get cut if uh, this goes through as this goes through. Do you have a sense of where those jobs are? Yeah, I mean the the 380 is is made in Toulouse. Um, they put a lot of investment in Toulouse, so I imagine a, a good share of, of uh, jobs get hurt there. Uh, you know, the Rolls Royce will make engines, GE makes some engines, um, so you see some some losses away from Toulouse at some of the suppliers and um, and maybe you know some of the other Airbus facilities that that uh, supply the airplane. But uh, I think the majority be in Toulouse. I would note that. Emirates placed uh, orders for the 350 and the 330, and Airbus is in the process of increasing production of the 320 from 50 to 60 airplanes this year. That's a 20% increase per month. 
And so I think there are other opportunities, and Airbus alluded to this, there are opportunities to find people places to move inside the Airbus uh, um, network, you know, as they wind down to 380. So, George, is this a good day for Boeing? Is, is a loss for Airbus good for Boeing? Well, I mean, I, you know, look, I think, uh, you know, I think from from sort of the, the PR standpoint, it might be it might be good because, you know, again, Boeing sort of built the seven or designed and built the seven eight seven at the same time Airbus was working the three eighty, and the two airplanes were markedly different. One was about point to point travel, and the other one was about hub and spoke. And I feel like this is a win for point to point. But the but the truth is, I mean, the three eighty wasn't making much money. I don't know that it adds much life to the seven forty seven. I think the seven forty seven's got a freighter variant that helps carry it, and that's really what's sort of saving the day for the seven forty seven. So it's a PR victory, but it's not huge. George Ferguson, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you so much. I got to say, the kid in me is sad to see these go, Paul, because, uh, you know, the, where's the romance in Where's the romance? Days? No, they're just cramming us more and more people into these single aisle, uh, you know, aisle planes. And uh, yeah, where are the, the cocktail bars and the so on and so forth? The Pan Am, yeah, the, exactly. the nostalgia, the running up staircases that I never really experienced, but I saw on television and want to experience uh, when I go and wonder if I have to pay for my Coca-Cola. Uh, thank you for Coca-Cola. <laughs> Shares. Exactly. Down, down. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.